One of the strangest skirmishes of the Great War happened nearly 1,000 miles east of Moscow and hundreds of miles more from the nearest war zone in a town called Chelyabinsk. Stranger still, it involved not Russians, but rather Czech and Hungarian soldiers who technically were on the same side. In May 1918, two transport trains sat at the Chelyabinsk rail station. One held a group of Hungarian POWs. They were trying to make their way west, back to Austria-Hungary. Their empire was no longer at war with Russia, and Russia was trying to return POWs to their homelands. The other train held a group of Czech soldiers, also former POWs. They wanted to go the opposite direction, to go east, all of the way across Siberia to Vladivostok on the Pacific coast. Their goal was not to return to Austria-Hungary, but rather to sail all the way around the world to France so they could join the war against the Central Powers. Yes, this plan was crazy. For days, the troops hung around the station waiting for locomotives. Finally, an engine arrived and was hooked up to the Hungarian troop train. It began to pull out of the station as the Czechs idly stood and watched it go. Then, without warning, a hunk of iron flew out of the window of the Hungarian train and struck one of the Czech soldiers on the head. He collapsed, fell onto the tracks, and was killed instantly. The enraged Czechs raced after the train, jumped onto the locomotive, and forced it to a stop. They hauled the Hungarians off the train at rifle point and ordered them to surrender the attacker. There were taunts and insults on both sides. Men shoved and punched. Czech officers struggled to maintain order. Some of the Hungarians pointed out the man who had started everything. The Czech officers were helpless to intervene as their men beat the Hungarian to death right there on the train platform. This is the year that was, 1919. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Elizabeth Linda, your host, and this is the podcast where we look at history one year at a time. This week and next week, we're going to be looking at the situation in Eastern Europe and Russia in 1919, as well as the years a little before and a little after. Now, everyone knows that November 11th, 1918 was the day of the armistice, the day the Great War ended and the fighting stopped. And that is exactly what happened in the West. All along the Western Front, the armies put down their guns and the soldiers went home. That's not what happened in Eastern Europe. The situation there was much more complicated. November 11th didn't mark the end of war. Instead, fighting took on a different form and it spread. I want you to imagine a map of Europe or look at a map if that's something you can do right now. There's one on the website at the year that was podcast.com. Imagine a line extending down from Finland and encompassing all of Eastern Europe from the Baltics in the north to the Balkans in the south. Everywhere east of that line, including Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Ukraine, and Russia, was a battleground in 1919. In many places, the conflict wouldn't end until 21 or 22. 
It's a difficult story to tell because everything happened at once, dozens of different parties were involved, and conflicts overlapped in weird ways. I've been researching this episode for weeks, and every time I think I've finally got a handle on it, I read something new and have to reassess the whole situation. My desk is covered with maps and post-it notes and color-coded diagrams and lots of little arrows. I really struggled to fit everything into one episode, so I decided to make it a two-parter. Make sure you check back next week because this week is going to end right in the middle of the action and you'll want to see how it all turns out. I also really struggled with how to tell this story. I knew I had to focus in somewhere. Otherwise, it's just too overwhelming. I could have picked any number of people or places, but at the end, I decided to focus on the Czechs and Slovaks and their incredible role in the Russian Revolution. This allows me to touch on a lot of different events that shaped the region between 1917 and 1922. And it's an extraordinary story that most people don't know. I know I certainly had no idea the major role the Czechoslovaks played in the Russian Revolution. Okay, let's get on with the action. Before we return to the train platform at Chelyabinsk, let's go back a bit and figure out how we got there. This story has two main parts, the Czech story and the Russian story. I'm going to tell the Czech part first, then I'm going to tell the Russian part, and then those two stories will intersect and we'll go on from there. So... The Czechs. The Czechs were one of the dozen or so ethnic groups ruled by Austria-Hungary. The last independent Czech state had been incorporated into the Habsburg Empire all the way back in 1526. But the Czech people retained their own language and customs. In the 19th century, they began to develop a strong sense of national identity. The Czech nationalist movement was one of many that swept across Europe in the 1800s. Back in the Middle Ages, most people had little sense of themselves as members of a nation. They might identify with their religion or their town or their region, but they didn't much think about a broader identity as Czech or Russian or German. That began to change in the late 18th and early 19th centuries when individuals who shared a common language, history, and traditions started to think of themselves as being members of a nation. Now, I am simplifying what is a very complicated process. Nationalism clashed with the dominant power structure in Europe at the time, which was the empire. Empires control multiple nationalities and ethnic groups, and the bigger, the better. The bigger your empire, the more powerful you are. In contrast, the nationalist ideal was the nation state, a state of one nation, in which everyone shares the same language, religion, traditions, etc. The goal of the nation state isn't to accumulate as much territory as possible, but rather to control the right land, the land that historically or traditionally belonged to the nation. Nation states are smaller than empires, but they are able to harness the love and loyalty of their people. Power is a matter of national unity. It's us against them. Nationalism has picked up a lot of baggage over the last century. Today, it's associated with extremist politics, especially fascism. It's often a code word for racism and xenophobia. What I would ask you to remember is that in 1919, those associations didn't yet exist. 
You could be a moderate and a nationalist or a Republican and a nationalist. Nationalism was at that point very empowering for people who for centuries had endured repression and discrimination from their imperial rulers. As the sense of Czech nationhood grew in the years before World War I, its people struggled for recognition and respect within the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. Some Czech leaders wanted independence, but many would have been happy with much less. More autonomy, less repression, and the right to use the Czech language in official business. Other ethnic nationalities in the Habsburg Empire, such as the Poles and the Slovenes, wanted much the same thing, and it seemed the empire was willing to give it to them. You can imagine if the Great War hadn't happened, the empire might have turned into a sort of United States of Central Europe. But the war changed everything. It exposed the weakness of the Austria-Hungarian Empire. Suddenly it seemed possible that the empire wouldn't survive the war and an independent future for its various nationalities looked achievable. Czech leaders realized this future would require a few things to happen. First, the central powers would have to be defeated. Second, the Czechs would need allied support. Third, the Czechs would need to build a government in exile that could take over when Independence Day arrived. Ideally, this government would include an army. At the start of the war, a politician and professor of philosophy named Tomas Masaryk emerged as a leader of the independence movement, which put him in a very dangerous position in Prague. In the first weeks of the war, ethnic nationalists across Austria and Hungary were arrested and executed. Masaryk escaped to London, where he would spend the next few years promoting his cause to allied leaders, many of whom had never heard of the Czechs. The French, for example, had long confused the Bohemians, that is, Czechs who resided in the region of Bohemia, with the Romani people and thought they traveled across Europe in brightly painted caravans. Masaryk insisted the Czechs partner with another ethnic group in their push for independence, the Slovaks. Masaryk was actually half Czech, half Slovak. Although the Czech and Slovak languages were related and their traditional homelands were adjacent to one another, the Slovaks had their own history, traditions, and identity. Yoking Czech and Slovak interests was both a blessing and a curse for the Slovaks. The Slovaks were heavily outnumbered by the Czechs, and it's likely without Czech support, their nationalist claims would have been ignored. On the other hand, Czechs dominated the independence movement and didn't always treat the Slovaks as equals. It was an uneasy partnership, but it held firm through this critical period. While Masaryk built relationships with allied press and politicians, hundreds of thousands of Czechs and Slovaks fought in the Austria-Hungarian army on the Eastern Front against Russia. The war between the Russian and Austria-Hungarian armies was particularly sloppy. Both the Russians and the Austrians were undersupplied, poorly organized, and badly led. One consequence of this was the capture of enormous numbers of prisoners of war. During the war, Russia held 2.4 million POWs. 90% of them were from Austria-Hungary. The Czechs and the Slovaks honestly didn't much mind being captured. A Russian POW camp sounds incredibly grim, but the soldiers considered it preferable to dying for an empire that oppressed their people. 
And then an idea started to form among Czech and Slovak nationalists. What if these POWs could be of service to their homeland? What if they went back to fighting, but this time on the side of the Allies? This would serve multiple purposes. The Czechs could help defeat the hated Austrians and Germans and ensure the freedom of their own nation. They would earn enormous goodwill from the Allies. And they would create the foundations of a future Czechoslovakian army. Besides, Czechs and Slovaks had already taken up arms against the Central Powers in Allied countries. Czechs and Slovaks living in France, Italy, and Serbia had formed units within their host country armies and earned high praise for their courage and skill. Similarly, Czechs and Slovaks living in Russia, not POWs but rather pre-war immigrants, had joined the Russian army and won international fame for their exploits. The French and the British highly respected the Czechoslovak units and thought creating a whole legion of former POWs was a fantastic idea. The Russians were less enthusiastic. They pointed out that arming POWs and sending them into battle was a direct violation of the rules of war outlined in the Hague Conventions. We're going to talk more about this point shortly. Tsar Nicholas II also seemed to find it unsportsmanlike. That's a weird hang-up for World War I, but there it is. Arguments went on for months, and the whole thing seemed to have bogged down until February 1917, when the opinion of the Tsar suddenly ceased to matter. Okay, for now we're going to leave the Czechs and the Slovaks languishing in Russian POW camps. Let's back up again and tell the Russian side of the story. Tsar Nicholas II was a member of the Romanov dynasty that had ruled Russia for 300 years. The country was proudly, defiantly autocratic. Power flowed from God to the Tsar, his anointed representative on earth. Most other European countries had moved beyond the divine right of kings long ago, but not Russia. The Tsar was often described as the father of his country, and not in a George Washington, he put us on the right path kind of way. It was more of a viciously patriarchal, father not only knows best, but will beat you to a bloody pulp if you dare question him kind of way. The Tsar was supposed to be a strict taskmaster. Tsar Nicholas's wife, the Empress Alexandra, once serenely informed her grandmother, Queen Victoria, that Russians love to be whipped. Nicholas's grandfather, Tsar Alexander II, had moved like a tiny little half-step away from total and absolute power. He had liberated the serfs, promoted regional self-government, and was just dipping his imperial toe into constitutional waters when he was brutally assassinated in 1881. The lesson that his son, Alexander III, took from his father's death was that no power could be allowed to slip from the Tsar's fingers. Give the people an inch and they will murder you. He drummed this lesson into his son Nicholas's head without, unfortunately, teaching him anything else about running a government. 
Nicholas, who took the throne in 1894, was so dedicated to retaining any and all power that he handled even the most mundane bureaucratic business himself. This included, to take two examples at random, reviewing the budget for repairs to a regional agricultural training college and appointing provincial midwives. Despite being consumed with work, he seemed incapable of implementing any sort of broader strategy. He ruthlessly squashed the efforts of any government ministers who showed initiative or vision, fearing any rival source of authority. He also never asked for advice from his ministers, since he believed he should take inspiration only from God. Nevertheless, he was a weak man who inevitably buckled under the force of stronger personalities. The joke in St. Petersburg went, Who is the most powerful person in Russia? The answer, the last man who spoke to the czar. Public dissent was ruthlessly repressed to stop the people from gaining any scraps of power for themselves. Political parties, trade unions, and other independent organizations were forbidden, making any sort of protest or debate illegal. This stifled moderate reform and pushed people toward extremes. There was no loyal opposition in Russia, only revolutionaries using fake names, sneaking to underground meetings, and trying to evade the secret police. The only person more protective of Nicholas's power than Nicholas was his wife, the Empress Alexandra. Alexandra came from the German aristocracy and, as I mentioned, was related to the English royal family. She ran the royal palace like a British country estate. Think Downton Abbey with significantly more caviar. But she was convinced that her beloved Nicky, with whom she liked to play croquet and dominoes, should in public life take his role model Ivan the Terrible. I really like the Downton Abbey comparison, actually. Remember how Lord Grantham, who was generally a nice guy, if said in his ways, was incredibly stupid about business and always bankrupting his family? That was Nicholas, except instead of ruining an earldom in Yorkshire, he was destroying a country of 142 million people. Nicholas's government was corrupt and incompetent, a fact that had become increasingly clear in two major disasters. First, there was a famine in 1891 that the government seemed incapable of alleviating. Then in 1904, Russia went to war with Japan, a humiliating exercise that exposed the weakness of the imperial military. The entire creaky machinery of the Russian state seemed to be seizing up. By the winter of 1905, the cities had nothing to eat. On January 9th, 150,000 workers marched on the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg, demanding bread and freedom. The army fired into the crowd, killing or wounded about 1,000 people. Conflicts spread to other cities and into the countryside. Strikes, marches, and protests, all of them illegal and incredibly dangerous, continued through the spring and summer and were only contained because the military remained loyal to the regime. Finally, in October, the Tsar was brought to realize the gravity of the situation and agreed to reforms, including the creation of a central legislative body known as the Duma. This was the Russian Revolution the 05 revolution, which is not as well remembered because it didn't mm, take. As soon as the situation calmed down, Nicholas began walking back reforms. By the time the Great War broke out in the fall of 1914, the Tsar was as powerful as ever, the government was just as corrupt, and the people were even more unhappy. 
A personal tragedy unknown outside of the royal family worsened the situation. The heir to the Russian throne, Alexei, had the blood disorder hemophilia. The blood of hemophiliacs doesn't clot properly, so individuals can bleed uncontrollably from everyday scratches and bruises. A nosebleed can be fatal. Today, hemophilia can be treated and life expectancy is near normal, but in Alexei's day, most hemophiliacs died before they reached adulthood. The Russian people didn't know about Alexei's disease. The family thought it would raise doubts about the regime to disclose his condition. Even though, really, doubts were well and truly raised, doubts had reached cruising altitude. However, Russians knew all about the man Alexandra believed could heal her son. Alexei nearly died in 1912, and the desperate Alexandra turned for help to a peasant mystic and healer named Gregory Rasputin. When Alexei recovered, his mother considered it a miracle, and Rasputin could do no wrong in her eyes. Alexandra had never been popular in Russia. Her shyness came off as arrogance. But dislike turned to hatred when she became devoted to the crude, greedy, ignorant, stinky, he never bathed, Rasputin. When Russia declared war in 1914, the military was better prepared than in 1904 and surprised Germany by mobilizing faster than had been anticipated. Nevertheless, the army was poorly led since most senior officers had been appointed not on the basis of ability, but because the Tsar or the Empress or Rasputin liked them. Most generals still believed war would be won by cavalry charges. The Russian railway system was a disaster, the communication system was primitive, and the supply situation was a disgrace. Soldiers lacked rifles, ammunition, boots, and winter coats. The Tsar's uncle commanded the military the first year, but he could make little headway, so the Tsar took over personal command of the army in September 1915. He was, this will not surprise you, bad at the job. The situation on the front worsened, as did the situation at home. Alexandra was left in charge of the government, and she devoted all of her energy to persecuting anyone who disliked Rasputin. The not particularly holy man provoked so much hostility that he was assassinated in December 1916 by members of the royal family. By early 1917, the Russian economy was in shambles. The government was broke. Running a war is always expensive, but Russia had immeasurably worsened its own situation by outlawing vodka. This had been the brilliant idea of the Tsar, who wanted his people sharp and sober in a crisis. Instead, the people drank bootleg liquor, and the government finance system collapsed because a whopping 28% of imperial tax revenues were from alcohol sales. Just let that sink in for a moment. The Tsar voluntarily eliminated 28% of government revenues just as the country went to war. That one detail so neatly encapsulates the stupidity and ineptitude of the czarist government. Anyway, inflation was running rampant, the price of a pair of boots had gone up by 334%, and the price of a box of matches, 
The salaries of most workers failed to keep up with the higher costs. Less food was being produced since many peasant farmers had been conscripted, and the overloaded railway system couldn't get foodstuffs from the countryside into cities. Women waited all night in line for bread, only to be told in the morning that none would be baked that day because no flour had reached the city. In February 1917, massive protests broke out in Petrograd with hundreds of thousands of workers on the streets. Just to be clear, Petrograd and St. Petersburg are the same place. The city had been renamed at the start of the war because St. Petersburg sounded too German. This time, when protesters filled the streets, the army didn't intervene. In fact, they began to side with the marchers. On February 26th, the Petrograd army garrison mutinied and imperial authorities lost all control of the capital. It took several days for Nicholas to realize what was going on. He was at the army headquarters, and at first he ignored reports of unrest back in Petrograd. But then messages began pouring in from senior ministers, members of the royal family, and army generals, all telling him the capital was lost and unrest was spreading. Nicholas needed to step down. Like now. Nicholas hesitated. God had chosen him, and you don't just blow off God. But on March 2nd, he renounced the throne. At first, he abdicated in favor of his son, but when he was told that the revolutionaries would insist on separating Alexei from his parents, he instead named his brother the next Tsar. Nicholas's brother promptly refused the crown, a sensible decision that wouldn't prevent his eventual execution, and that was the end of the Romanov dynasty. Nicholas was reunited with his wife and children, and they were confined to a comfortable palace where they played more croquet and more dominoes and generally seemed to enjoy themselves. Everyone who saw the former imperial overlord remarked he seemed much happier now that he wasn't the czar. Back in Petrograd, power became concentrated in two bodies. The first was the Provisional Government. The Provisional Government was a moderate to liberal, democratic-minded organization made up of members of the last Duma, and it was determined to create a Russian republic. Its goal was to hold a constituent assembly sometime in the near future to write a constitution and elect a permanent government. On paper, the provisional government looked like it had things under control, but it had a hard time establishing its legitimacy. Its members talked a lot about elections, but they actually hadn't been elected. They had simply seized power when the imperial government collapsed. They also talked about the importance of slow and steady progress in how the constituent assembly would solve all of the people's problems through a deliberative process. This all sounded like it would take forever, and the people's problems couldn't wait. Meanwhile, the second power center was the Petrograd Soviet. Soviet simply means council. The Petrograd Soviet was a council of the city's workers and soldiers. It was far to the left of the provisional government, with members steeped in revolutionary communist doctrine. Soviets were dominated by Marxists of one stripe or another. 
Marxism appealed to urban factory workers because it provided an explanation for the vast impersonal forces that had kept them hungry, poor, and powerless for so long. In the finest tradition of Marx, they believed in the direct rule of the proletariat, that is, the working classes, the peasants, factory workers, enlisted soldiers, and the like. It was just as unproductive and cumbersome... You know, wait a minute. We've been plugging away at some very serious stuff for quite a while now, and we deserve a break and something completely different. What? I told you, we're an anarcho-syndicalist commune. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Yes. But all the decisions of that officer have to be ratified at a special bi-weekly meeting. Yes, I see. By a simple majority in the case of purely internal affairs. Be quiet. But by a two-thirds majority in the case of... Be quiet. I order you to be quiet. Obviously, that's Michael Palin explaining to Graham Chapman the setup of his peasant commune in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And actually, that clip is deeply relevant because that's just about how the Soviets were actually set up. Shared governance, rotating executive authority, the whole thing. And as you would expect, it was just as unproductive and cumbersome as it sounded. Worse, it was vicious. Ordinary Russians had never had so much power, and they wielded it with a vengeance. Regional Soviets gleefully kicked out czarist governors. Peasants marched on the grand estates of the gentry. Sometimes the aristocrats were allowed to flee with the clothes on their backs. Other times they were murdered in their beds. Urban worker Soviets took control of the factories. Sometimes they allowed the bosses to stick around. Other times they beat the bosses to death and then adopted an eight-hour workday. Bottom-up control even spread to the army, which was still on the Eastern Front confronting the Central Powers. Soldiers established their own Soviets. When officers gave an order, the Soviet would meet and debate that order. If it wasn't something they particularly cared to do, they murdered their officers. Maybe if the officers had been particularly harsh, they tortured them first. It will not shock you to learn that it was extremely difficult to fight a war under these circumstances. But then the soldiers weren't particularly interested in the war. Something like a million men deserted between March and October 1917. It is at this critical point that a new group of players entered the game. The Bolsheviks. So who were the Bolsheviks and what did they want? Bolsheviks were extreme Marxists. The name Bolshevik originated at a Communist Party Congress in 1903, when the group split over matters of ideology far too obscure to go into here. Bolshevik meant essentially majority, since their ideological position received the majority of votes. Bolsheviks supported the revolutionary overthrow of capitalism and the establishment of a communist society. In the society, all social classes would be eliminated, especially the bourgeoisie, those middle and upper class factory owners and shopkeepers who, according to Marx, had unjustly stolen the means of production. In the future envisioned by the Bolsheviks, the bourgeoisie would be stamped out, power would derive from the people, and the people would rule themselves. Except, not right away. The people weren't ready for that kind of responsibility. Marx had always insisted that society had to go through a series of steps to be ready to govern itself. It was difficult in the summer of 1917 to argue that society was ready for self-rule, considering how badly things were going under the Soviets. 
different communist theorists had proposed different solutions to this problem. The Bolshevik solution was presented by one Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, whom we last encountered in Zurich across the street from the Cabaret Voltaire. Lenin argued for a two-stage communist revolution. In the first stage, a powerful individual would take charge of the revolution. This leader would centralize authority and move the state toward the goal of a classless society. He, the leader, would be a man, obviously, would do things like eliminate private property, implement state control of factories and farms, and accelerate industrialization. Ultimately, when society was ready to govern itself, the leader would step aside, the state would wither away, and the workers' paradise would thrive. The ideal leader for this first stage of communism was, it hardly needed to be said, Lenin himself. Much to his annoyance, Lenin had been in exile when the revolution broke out in February 1917. He had some difficulty getting back to Russia, since there was a great big old war going on, but he finally agreed to accept German help to return to his homeland. He hated the Germans, but ends mattered more than means to Lenin, and he was perfectly happy to take German money and travel on a German train back to Petrograd. The Germans were always pleased to stir up trouble in enemy nations. Just wait till we talk about Ireland. Lenin had spent only six months of the previous 17 years in Russia, but that didn't stop him from being convinced that he knew exactly what the Russian people needed, his guiding hand. Lenin was soon joined by other returning revolutionaries, and they began a steady and strategic rise to power, concentrating on the Soviets. Step by step, they gained majorities in the Petrograd and Moscow Soviets until the control of these two critical bodies were in their hands. The provisional government's ability to hold things together had weakened the entire summer of 1917. It launched a military offensive against the Germans, but the attack ended in heavy losses and a humiliating retreat deep into Russian territory. The few soldiers that had remained loyal were now disgusted with the government. Plans for the Constituent Assembly kept getting pushed back as ministers squabbled over petty details. Meanwhile, Soviet rule wasn't really working out. Food still wasn't reaching the big cities. Prices kept rising. Factories kept shutting down. The Bolsheviks had a simple explanation for all of these problems. The problem, they said, is that the Soviets were trying to cooperate with the bourgeoisie. Obviously, the provisional government was a bourgeois institution. Just look at those ministers and bureaucrats with their soft hands and their talk of republics. You can't cooperate with the bourgeoisie. You've got to kill the bourgeoisie. Once the Soviets accepted this premise, the rest was a matter of planning and organization. Whatever else you say about Lenin, and please say whatever you like, he was good at the details. Early on the morning of October 25, 1917, the Bolsheviks seized the Petrograd railway stations, post offices, telegraph stations, banks, power stations, and police stations. Then they surrounded the headquarters of the provisional government and marched its ministers off to prison. The whole affair took little more than a day. This was the October Revolution when the Bolsheviks seized control of Russia. The Bolsheviks rapidly consolidated their power and cities across Russia fell one after another into their hands. 
Lenin took advantage of the moment to arrest all of his political opponents. He also established the Cheka, the terrifying secret police force that was the precursor of the KGB. Lenin's priorities were very clear. Seize all of the power and hold it close. He was even more fixated on power than Nicholas and much better at his job. Meanwhile, the Great War went on. With the Russian army in tatters, German forces continued to advance into Russian territory. The people wanted peace. The soldiers wanted peace. Everyone wanted peace, except for a handful of Bolsheviks who argued that signing a peace treaty in this moment of weakness would be devastating for Russia. But Lenin understood that peace was the best thing the Bolsheviks could do right now. The people would be grateful, and the Bolsheviks could concentrate on more important matters. So on March 3, 1918, the Bolshevik government signed the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk with the Central Powers. And it was a devastating treaty. Russia lost 34% of its population, 54% of its industrial land, 89% of its coal fields, and 26% of its railways. Lenin just shrugged. He could always regain the territories later, when Russia was in a better situation. Anyway, the ultimate goal of the Bolsheviks was global revolution. Russia was just the start. They would get the land back one way or another down the road. For now, they didn't have a war to deal with. Of course, not everyone liked the peace treaty, particularly the 34% of Russians who now lived in territory that had been handed over to the Germans. Also unhappy about the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk? The Czechs and the Slovaks. Hey, look, it's the Czechs and the Slovaks. Remember them? They're back. And this is the moment that our two stories come together. Czech and Slovak nationalist leader Tomas Masaryk had not given up on the idea of a military force of former POWs. In fact, he had rushed to Petrograd in May 1917, hoping that the provisional government would give its permission for the creation of the unit. The provisional government was finding care and feeding of 2.4 million prisoners of war a real burden and decided if a group of them wanted to pay their own way out of the country, more power to them. So they gave their blessing to the creation of a new Czechoslovak legion. In July, Masaryk and his supporters began visiting POW camps to recruit soldiers. It wasn't an easy decision to sign up. Doing so put a soldier outside of the protection of international law. If caught by German or Austrian troops, they would be shot on sight. But conditions at the POW camps were disintegrating. The government was in such a shambles that no one was bothering to, like, feed them. In the end, about 50,000 Czechs and Slovaks signed up for the Legion. In early autumn 1917, they began assembling at camps in Ukraine and training for battle. The Czechs weren't the only ones recruiting in POW camps. Bolshevik organizers saw the enemy soldiers as the ideal agents to carry communist ideology into Central Europe. They imagined returning POWs sparking Bolshevik revolutions from Berlin to Belgrade. Some POWs were so inspired by their encounter with Marxist doctrine that they decided not to go home at all, but rather to support the revolution right there in Russia. Bolshevik-controlled Soviets happily released them and put them to work. And then the Bolsheviks took over the country and signed the peace treaty with the Central Powers. This changed everything. 
the Czechs and the Slovaks couldn't join the Russians fighting on the Eastern Front because there was no more Eastern Front. They couldn't go home with the other POWs because they had taken up arms against Austria-Hungary. They couldn't stay in Ukraine because Germany had been awarded Ukraine in the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, and German troops were advancing fast, hoping to seize the territory before winter set in. A trap was closing around the Czechoslovaks. The only way out was east, deeper into Russian territory. This was bad enough, but Masaryk and the other Czechoslovak leaders had a further problem, a political problem. They had promised the Allies military aid in exchange for support for an independent Czechoslovakia. If they failed to provide that aid, the Allies might lose interest. So at this critical moment, Tomas Masaryk came up with the idea of sending the Czechs and Slovaks all the way across Russia and Siberia to Vladivostok on the Pacific coast. From there, Allied ships would pick them up, sail them all the way around the world, and deliver them to France, where they would join the Allies on the Western Front. This plan is insane. It's almost 5,000 miles from Kiev to Vladivostok. That's roughly the distance from Honolulu to New York City, or Cape Town to Cairo. The underlying logic of this plan is that of a sitcom character shouting, it's just so crazy, it might work. I have to wonder if Lennon agreed to go along just so he could see what would happen. Because somehow, Masteric convinced Lenin, along with the members of the Legion and the Allies, to go along with this wackadoodle plan. I am least surprised that the Legionnaires signed on, despite the fact that they would be the ones actually crossing the entire freaking Asian landmass. They had to go east because they couldn't go west. The road to Prague went through Vladivostok. And so in March 1918, the Legion engaged in a desperate rearguard battle with advancing German troops to secure their route out of Ukraine. They escaped into Russia and faced east. Their odyssey had begun. The Legion headed into Siberia on multiple trains. Some traveled faster than others, so before long, the Legion was spread out across a territory wider than the continental United States. They traveled on the Trans-Siberian Railway, the narrow metal spine that connected European Russia with Siberia. The railroad was controlled by regional Soviets, which might or might not be loyal to Lenin. Every time the Czechs and Slovaks rolled into a new town, the local Soviet would question why they were there and demand money and rifles. It didn't help that many local Soviets included new converts to the Bolshevik cause that had been recruited from POW camps, especially Hungarians for some reason. The Czechs and Slovaks kept running into hostile Hungarian Bolsheviks who piled revolutionary antagonism on top of long-held ethnic prejudices. These were ugly moments. The Legion's journey was slow and frustrating, with inexplicable stops in the middle of nowhere. The Legionnaires were held together by fierce loyalty to their aspiring nation and to one another. They were strangers in a strange land. They had only one another to rely upon. 
Their officers were smart and capable men who kept the troops busy through the unaccountable delays, drilling and training them along the tracks in a succession of Russian villages. Then in May, a unit of the Legion arrived in Chelyabinsk, and the men had their fatal encounter with the Hungarian POWs. The conflict began in a moment of inexplicable violence. The Hungarians and the Czechs had gotten along just fine during the several days they had spent alongside one another at the train station, even growing companionable and sharing cigarettes. Then one man lashed out, and the reaction was instant. At the end of the scuffle, one Czech and one Hungarian were dead. The Czechs reported the incident to the local Soviet and marched several Hungarians into town. But as it happened, the Chelyabinsk Soviet was dominated by Hungarian Bolsheviks, who let the Hungarians go and arrested a dozen or so Czechs. The legionnaires promptly seized Chelyabinsk without killing a single Bolshevik and freed their companions. Then they got back on their train, for which a locomotive had finally been found, and continued east. That might have seemed the end of that. Except Bolshevik leaders back in the capital lost their minds. Leon Trotsky, one of Lenin's top deputies and the leader of the Red Army, was enraged and issued orders that every armed Czechoslovak was to be shot, all unarmed legionnaires were to be arrested, and the trains were to stop immediately. The legionnaires weren't going to let that happen. By now, Czech troops were stretched along almost the entire length of the Trans-Siberian Railway. So in a series of well-executed operations, they seized the railway. All of their training paid off. Through the summer of 1918, the Czechoslovak Legion captured city after city, neatly dispatching any Bolsheviks they encountered. By September, this small force controlled thousands of miles of territory in the heart of Russia. The entire world was astounded. Russia swallowed up armies, just as Napoleon. And yet here were the Czechs and Slovaks conquering Siberia like it was no big thing. No wonder the Bolsheviks were furious. The Legion didn't slow down all summer. Soon they were extending their control along other rail lines to secure their position. In July, they began moving toward the regional capital Yekaterinburg, about 120 miles north of Chelyabinsk. What the Czechs and the Slovaks didn't know, what they had no way of knowing, was who the Bolsheviks had moved to Yekaterinburg earlier that summer. They had no idea that the former Tsar, the former Empress, and their five children were imprisoned in Yekaterinburg. And that's where I'm going to leave you. I really hope you check back next week. I'm going to pick up right where I'm leaving off and try to tie all of this together. Make sure you visit the website, www.theyearthatwaspodcast.com. I've got photos of all of the main players, as well as lots of maps. Maps really help with this episode. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, I invite you to do so. It's easy to do on Apple Podcasts and all of the other podcast services. Uh, Leave a review or a rating or tell a friend. And join us on Facebook, where we talk about the year that was and how the events of 19 19 still shape our lives. Thanks so much for listening. I'm your host, Elizabeth Lunday, and this is the year that was. I'm your king. Well, I didn't vote for you. You don't vote for kings. Well, how do you become king then? The lady of the lake.
her arm clad in the purest shimmering Samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I'm your king. Listen, strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Be quiet! He really has a point. And was dissent from Tsar Michael in 1613 any more valid a form of supreme authority than a farcical aquatic ceremony? Wasn't even direct male line descent since the House of Romanov actually died out in 1762 and they had to cast around for an heir, finally selecting a German duke with a precarious claim to the throne. Help! I'm being repressed! 